0: I feel like a preemptory word of congratulations is in order because if you make it through the sermon this morning, which I presume you will, but if you do, you will have made it through 100 sermons from the gospel according to John. I stopped putting the number of sermons on the screen when someone said to me how many we had been doing. I was like, well, I'll just take it off, then you won't know. But now you know, we're at 100. So I feel like if you've been here for all 100, you deserve a I don't know, a gift bag or a pin to put on your lapel or maybe a vacation. I don't know what you need, but what a joy this book has been. I hope your soul has been enriched and edified and encouraged as mine has been. I had no idea the depths of the goodness and glory of God revealed in this book. Uh, It's been a tremendous privilege of mine. Maybe the greatest privilege of my pastoral ministry to study this book. And that's saying something, because it's filled with joys and privileges, but what a book. I want to come back one more time to John 17. This is the high priestly prayer of our Lord as he prays for his disciples, he prays for us, he prays for himself as he heads to the cross. We, we've kind of picked our way through the parts of the prayer. We've gone verse by verse and we've pulled apart all the different meanings and tried to put it back together in a way that that we can understand and apply. This morning, I want to lay before you some practical lessons on prayer from our Lord. And I've observed a few of those along the way, kind of pointed them out to you as we pass them on the journey, but I want to go back and and give some concentrated time to, to practical application on prayer from our Lord And that's a bit of of a crazy task, because you could spend the rest of your life in John 17 and learn about prayer from Jesus. So I've whittled the list down to eight. Uh, These are the eight that stood out to me. Uh, And even with eight, we're going to be flying, as I'm sure you know, to get through all of them. And I won't be able to say as much as I want to about any of them. So let me encourage you, as you are listening, if you don't write down all eight, maybe you can write down the one or two that really grab your attention. And come back to those, because I guarantee you, we're not going to give enough time to it here. Maybe you can come back to that lesson and and think of other scripture passages that would teach you uh, the same truth that we see from our Lord Jesus in John 17. I want to begin this morning by reading the text of John 17. I don't normally do this, and I know you were just standing, but can I ask you to stand with me as we read John 17? I feel as though we're on holy ground in John's gospel and I want to give credence to our Lord and to the holiness of his word in this chapter. John 17 and verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Father in heaven, we reiterate the words of your son asking you to sanctify us with this truth. We pray specifically as the disciples asked our Lord Jesus, so we ask you now, Lord, teach us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Thank you. In Luke one, Luke 11, 1, we're told about Jesus praying in a certain place. It was his habit to find places along the journey of his ministry to kind of hole away and seek the Father's face. In Luke 11, we're told that he was praying in a certain place, and apparently the disciples could see that he was praying and even heard him praying. And when he had finished praying, his disciples approached him and said to him, Lord, teach us to Pray. Have you ever had that experience when you have prayed publicly, having had someone come up to you and say, can you help me know how to pray? No, I haven't either, ever. They heard Jesus pray. They heard him have this sweet communion with the Father. They knew that everything public was the overflow of this private relationship with his Father in prayer. They knew that everything they heard him say publicly was rooted in this deep relationship. They'd never heard anyone pray like Jesus prayed. Not only that, but they'd never heard anyone teach like Jesus taught. They'd never heard someone cut through the smog and the smoke of of the pharisaical teaching like Jesus had. They never knew another teacher who could slice through the realities of a subject and Clear the air and teach with great effectiveness on any given reality. And so based on his example and on his expertise, they come to him in Luke 11 and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. We this morning are in that same spot, aren't we? There's no greater master of prayer to teach us how to pray than the Lord Jesus. He knows how to do it and he knows all the ins and outs of it. He lays for us the perfect example, and he has the perfect expertise. And so we humbly come as God's people in this room, and we say to our Lord, teach us to pray. I wonder, do you crave a deeper, more vibrant, more true life of prayer? Do you know the the rub in your soul of prayer? never having really felt like you've prayed as you ought to? Do you know the, the angst in your spiritual man in which you feel like you should pray more and then the excuses begin? Do you long to know how to pray better? Do you, do you know in the depth of your spiritual being that you feel like there's just more to learn, that, that you could speak with your Heavenly Father more effectively, more efficiently, more relationally, more in union with his will and according to his word. If that is true of you, as I trust it is, then we say together, Lord, teach us to pray. One of the deep concerns we've had as elders in our church family for the last eight, ten years, comes up routinely, is just that God would grow us in prayer. And we know what that means. We know that means God's going to entrust to us some hard things, as we'll see in John 17. He uses hard things to force us to our knees. We long for God to, to make us be a, a church family that communicates often with our Heavenly Father in true Christ-honoring prayer. I want you to know this morning that God is happy to teach you to pray. He doesn't view this prayer relationship as, as though it's spiritual purgatory. It's just something you've got to get through in order to get to the joy of heaven. And he's made it intentionally hard for you so that, that you just have to work a little harder at your spiritual life so that you can, can enjoy heaven a little bit more because it was harder in prayer in this life. No, prayer is a, a joy-filled, joy-giving expression of relationship between the God who rescued us from our sin and us, our saved, sanctified self. Yes, prayer is hard, but it's not because God's designed it that way just to, just to keep your attention, just to see you struggle through it. You see, God wants you to grow in this area of of your spiritual journey. He wants you to increase in, in effective prayer, in deep relationship with him as he encourages you as his child to know him and to know how to talk to him. And so it's with that confidence that God wants us to grow that we as his people submit ourselves to John 17 and we say to Jesus and to our Father, teach us to pray. I'm going to lay before you just eight lessons that the Lord has taught me from this chapter. You certainly have others or more, but I want you to hear these lessons from John 17. As Jesus teaches us to pray, we learn from him that prayer is shaped by who we are talking to. That's the first lesson of prayer that Prayer is shaped by who we are talking to. It's one of the, the basics which is all too often missed as we bow our heads and close our eyes and start mumbling words out of our mouth. We often forget who it is that we're talking to in prayer. In verse 1, Jesus counters our normal physical posture. And he raises his head and lifts his eyes and, and looks as it were through the realm separating man and God creation and creator, and fixes his eyes, as it were, on his Father enthroned in heaven, showing us that his focus right from the get-go is not upon the men in the room. He's not praying to them, nor primarily for their benefit. He is praying to the Father, focused upon the one to whom he is speaking. And yet so often we find this temptation lurking in our own hearts, at least I do, so you can judge me for saying this, but so often when we pray, especially publicly, we see and hear these people who will be listening in on our prayer, and we feel compelled to shape our prayer to them, and really, in essence, to to pray to them, to pray words fit for them. And so we try extra hard to, to sound really spiritual we want them to think good things about us in our praying, right? Or we pray short and really relatively meaningless prayer because we're focused on getting these people around us onto their next thing, like eating the food in front of them. Lord, thank you for sweet, food. Amen. Have a great day. Because we're focused on the people around us. Or we pray in man-centered ways, prayers which are are focus upon the needs and the wants of, of those that even we're praying for or are in our presence that we're praying for. Knowing that they're listening, we pray in ways that we think they would be pleased hearing us pray for them about. But when Jesus prays, the one he is talking to shapes how he prays. And you could spend the rest of the afternoon thinking about that thought. How is it that Jesus speaking to his Father shapes how he prays? Just a few thoughts to get your engine warmed up a little bit. He prays reverently because he is speaking directly to his Holy Father. He prays with reverence and awe to his Holy Father. He speaks with familiarity of relationship because he's speaking as a son to his loving Father. He speaks to the Father about things which concern the will and the plans of the Father on earth. And so he prays in line with what he knows the Father is planning to do and purposes to do. He prays to the Father for the Father's glory to be seen and for his will to be accomplished. He prays without verbal clutter. He prays without needless repetition of phrases. Did you notice by chance that he doesn't use the word just one time in his prayer? For whatever reason, that's become the the English verbal clutter in our praying. Or we repeat the name of God over and over and over again as though somehow he's forgotten it. And it's just its just our way of catching our mind and helping us think on the next thing. It's, I don't mean to condemn us for doing it. I do it too. Even when I'm trying not to, I do it more when I'm trying not to sometimes. But Jesus is, the, the cure to that is not me telling you stop it. The cure to that is to fix your gaze on who you're talking to. To focus on the Father who is hearing you and listening to your every request. Notice that Jesus does not say the same old things about the same old things. Father, be with them and bless them. Help them and keep them, protect them, guide them, deliver them, and bless them. Amen. he, He prays with intentionality and Thoughtfulness and carefulness, laying before the Father things that he thinks the Father actually wants to hear about the concerns that he has. Meaningful request driven by the one he is speaking to. He doesn't thoughtlessly repeat catchphrases that he's heard other Christians pray. He simply and gloriously speaks to the Father. And because he's cutting through, all that separates heaven and earth. He prays what he prays in chapter 17. And so the lesson for us briefly is to consider who you're talking to when you pray and then pray accordingly. And I have found it helpful before I start uttering words out of my mouth, whether silently or publicly, to think about who I'm talking to. That the holy God of heaven is bending his ear to hear my request the one who transcends above all that he has made, is enthroned above the heavens, who cannot be touched with my infirmities, who knows everything that is wrong with me and every need I have that I will ask him about, knows the words that are going to come out of my mouth before they ever come out of my mouth. Then I ought in reverence seek the face of my Father in prayer. I do not mean to make prayer so scary and and so horrible that you don't ever want to do it because I have to talk to the Father. No, this is your loving, merciful Father who gave his own Son for the forgiveness of your sins, shed his Son's blood so that yours would never have to be. He loves you and he cares for you and has endless compassion for you. He's the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He bends his ear to hear our prayer in in mysterious glory. So go to him as the one who hears your prayer and have your prayer shaped by the one to whom you're talking to. You do this in every other conversation, by the way. You do this when you're talking to your wife. You talk to her in ways you don't talk to other women in the church. You do this when you're talking to your kids when when they're doing well at something. You, You speak to them in ways you won't talk to someone else's kids because it's not your role. You, you talk, you, you gear your conversation to your employer in a certain way that you wouldn't talk to your coworker. Because there's an office of respect and reverence that they hold in your life. You get the idea. We do this in every other relationship. We ought to do this with God. Consider who it is you talk to. Prayer also is an act of love. That's the next lesson. Prayer is an act of love. Jesus prays at this very moment in his journey to the cross because he loves his father and because he loves his disciples. And so the language of this prayer is dripping with love. It's the love from eternity past and eternity present into eternity future from the triune Godhead shared between Father, Son, and Spirit. And the more we as God's children grow in our love for our Heavenly Father, the more we will pray. Prayer is the life breath of this relationship that we have with God through his son. So think of it this way we breathe in the life-giving oxygen of, of truth into our lungs of faith as we take in the knowledge of God through his word. That's, that's breathing in truth into our lungs of faith. And then we we breathe out expressions of faith and of trust and of love to our Father through the avenue of prayer. Breathe in the word and and breathe out words of praise and adoration and trust and faith. Prayer is the language of a loving relationship. It's your side of a relationship that God has begun with you out of love. In love, he predestined you, Ephesians 1 said, calling you to himself through his son. That loving relationship has as its expression out of you love for him primarily, fundamentally, in prayer, talking to him. You know this in human relationships and human parenting. We wonder as parents if our kids love us if they don't talk to us. fact, we're pretty sure they're mad at us or that we did something wrong or provoke them to anger if, if they give us the cold shoulder and won't engage in conversation. Our Father has given us this avenue of a loving relationship of prayer. But prayer is also an act of love for others. It's how everything that happened in the upper room was framed by John back in John 13, verse 1. He says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John's telling you in John 13, 1, that everything that follows in 13 to 17 and on into his crucifixion is out of love from Jesus for his own. He had loved these men well. He had faithfully filled his role of revealing the Father to them. And he was about to complete his mission of redeeming them by giving his life as a sacrifice on the cross for them. And that love for them compelled every aspect of his interaction with them in the upper room. He got up and picked up the servant's towel and washed their feet because he loved them. He trained and instructed them and reminded them, especially of the Holy Spirit who had come after him because he loved them. He reminded them of all that he had taught them because he loved them. And now as he prepares to leave the upper room and go to the cross as the supreme act of his love for them, he stops and he prays for them because he loves them. This shows us, brothers and sisters, that prayer is an act of love. It's it's an act of you loving others. That's an encouraging and a convicting thought, isn't it? So it's encouraging in that the fuel for our prayer life is the love that we have for those in our lives. So as we grow in Christ and in our love for Him, and then as we grow in our love for other people, we can't help but pray more for them. We're compelled by our love for them to pray for them because we, as we mature in the Lord, we understand that we can do acts of love for them, but those would be far surpassed by God working in their lives. And so before we even uphold and maintain our responsibilities and our relationships of providing for our kids or exhorting and encouraging someone in the faith or whatever it is, before we even do that, we stop and we pray for them. And we ask the God of heaven to intervene in their lives, even through our role and responsibility, so that they would grow in him and grow in his love. Far better for us to petition the almighty God of heaven to work in their lives than to just take it all by ourselves and work even if it is in love for them. You see, prayer is driven along by love. That makes then this a convicting thought, doesn't it? That's an encouragement that every time we stop and pray for someone, it's, it's an expression of our love for them. That's a convicting thought too, though, is it Not? So what is it that you pray the most about? What is it that captures your communication with your Heavenly Father the most? What do you most often ask Him about and pray to Him about? What do you most want Him to change? And have asked Him the most about, are these not evidence of your chief concerns and, and dare I say the things you love the most? Aren't these expressions of the things that have captured your heart? And mean the most to you, and therefore are the things you love the most. When we're not praying, we're not loving as we ought. And so we find ourselves prayerless as it relates to our church family. Isn't that then an evidence of our lack of love for Christ's body? We find ourselves prayerless about our, our family or our friends or our coworkers or our neighbors. Praying occasionally, but never in any kind of depth or for any kind of length. Throwing up perfunctory prayers to our Lord, but nothing more. Isn't that evidence of our shallowness of love for them? We love them enough to throw up a prayer here and there, but we don't love them enough to to set aside other things. Prayer is never an issue of time, by the way. Never. Prayer is always an issue of priority and of love. So prayer is an act of love. Third lesson, prayer is ignited by severe affliction. Jesus is here obviously being impressed by the imminence of the cross. It's crushing him. The great crisis of the moment of his incarnation is looming heavy on his heart. And that presses him to pray. This high priestly prayer is where it is in the the timeline of Christ's life for a reason. It's It's here that he prays the way he prays for a reason. Not that he didn't pray for his disciples earlier in his ministry, he certainly did, but he prays this prayer here because his soul is being pressed by severe affliction, namely the affliction of the cross. In just a few more minutes, we'll see as we progress in the gospel record that he leaves the upper room to buy more time, not to avoid arrest but to buy more time. And and what does he do with that time? He goes further into the garden than anyone else and he beseeches the Father yet again. He prays again. You see, severe affliction presses upon our Savior's soul and compels him to pray. And indeed, never have we prayed like we have when severe tests fall upon our lives. When the darkness lowers upon us and we can't even see the next step, We're compelled to cry out to our God, the Lord of our light and our salvation, and ask Him for help. When the agony and the sorrow of circumstances beyond our control settle down upon our soul, we're compelled to to cry out to God in prayer. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So when we can't see the way forward, when we can't understand the way in which God intends to be active in our lives and work all these things out for our good and His glory, when we can't see His promises being kept and really can't even see how it's possible to have His promises be kept in our circumstance, then we must, what, walk by faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen. And the language of that faith is prayer. We voice our our deep, settled trust in our Lord. It's hammered out in our heart, and then it's expressed in our prayer to our Heavenly Father, asking Him to keep His promises, asking Him to sustain us under trial, asking Him to give us discernment and wisdom according to His will, to know what next step to take under severe affliction. This is what Jesus does as he prays, facing the cross. But notice how he prays. So severe affliction, severe affliction, forces you to pray. But not all prayers are created equal in severe affliction, are they? Notice how Jesus prays when severe affliction presses upon him. He prays preeminently for God's glory in it all. He starts there in verses one through five that the Father and the Son will be glorified together through this. He also prays for others affected, verses 6 through 19. He prays for his disciples. He knows that by his affliction, they too will be afflicted. That he being shamed and rejected and nailed to a cross, they will suffer and endure persecution in this world. So he prays for them. He also prays that they'll be preserved and sanctified and unified. He prays for them with spiritual concern. He doesn't pray for alleviation of their agony. He doesn't pray that God would remove them from the world and all that will come with the the problems of the world. Rather, he prays that God would accomplish his purposes in them and through them in light of their affliction. Verse 24, he prays and asks the Father to complete the mission. So he prays for God's glory. He prays for others who are affected by his affliction, and then he prays for God to have his way and his will to accomplish his purposes in it all. So prayer is ignited by severe affliction, and the best kinds of prayers in severe affliction are like our Lord's. That Father and Son would be glorified through the testing of our faith. That others around us affected by our affliction would also be preserved, sanctified, and unified by our Heavenly Father, and that God would accomplish His eternal purposes through this affliction. The fourth lesson on prayer is that prayer is compelled by knowing God's will. Prayer is compelled by knowing God's will. We just saw that in verse 24. Jesus knows that it's God's will to bring the redeemed home to be with Him in all of eternity. So He prays that way in verse 24. He also prays for the Father to keep His disciples in verses 9 through 11 to preserve them and to keep them from the evil one. He also knows that it's the Father's will to sanctify them, to purify them and to set them apart for service. He also knows that it's the Father's will to unify them into one body, to make them one. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor, man and woman, adult and child, brought together all in one Christ, in one body. So he knows that that's God's will, that that's the Father's will, that God's going to do that in light of what's going to happen on the cross. And yet here, before he goes there, he prays that God would do all these things. In fact, he wouldn't have much to pray about if he did not pray for the will of God to be accomplished, would he? This is the backbone of his prayer in John 17, to pray according to the will of God. So it can be deduced then from Jesus' example that prayer is compelled by knowing God's will. Jesus knew going into the upper room what the plan was. He knew before the foundation of the world what the plan was. That doesn't make him prayerless. That drives him to pray as affliction presses upon him, as the hour appointed for his death is coming and looming He is compelled to pray that God would do the very things God intends to do. Frankly, most of our praying, most of my praying, is about things that we don't actually know what God's will is to do in those things. So we're often consumed with circumstantial type things, that God would change this or that or work in this way or that way when we don't really know if that is in accord with His will or not. But we do know what his will is in those things, whether the circumstances change or not. So, for example, take someone who is seriously ill, threatened with a life-threatening and a life-altering illness. Should you pray for the sick? Absolutely. And we're most prone to pray for the sick in categories of things in which we don't actually know God's will about those things. So is it God's will to heal that person? We don't know. Is it God's will for that person to be brought home to heaven through this illness? We don't know. Is it God's will that the the treatments they're getting from the medical community would be helpful and that they would not get more sick from the treatments than they do from the illness? We don't know. Is it wrong to pray about any of those things? Absolutely not. Do not mishear me. Pray for their healing. James 5, plead with the Lord, the Father of mercies, to shed mercy on them and heal them but also learn from the example of our Lord Jesus and pray in line with his will more than you pray in line with anything else. Well, what would be the Lord's will? Well, we know it's the Lord's will through the testing of this illness to grow and keep them in the Lord, to, to make them stronger in Christ, to preserve them so that they persevere in their faith. We know that it's the, the Lord's will that they would be sustained in trusting the Lord. We know it's the Lord's will to be glorified through their illness. That his name would be made great and his glory would be seen in their family and in, even in the medical community treating them and on down the list. That God would be magnified through this situation. We know it's God's will to sanctify them in unique ways through trial for greater usefulness later. So Lord, sanctify them By your truth, through this affliction, as you have their ear of faith now more than you've ever had before, help them to learn the lessons you have for them so that they can be all the more useful to you in the days to come. This is in line with what we know is God's will to do. There we ought then follow the pattern of our Lord. Is this not how Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6? Remember as he, the disciples' prayers, he teaches us how to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Third request, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is modeling that for us here in John 17, to pray in accord with the will of God. Which, by the way, means we need to know the will of God, to pray in accord with the will of God. Which means we need to know the word of God, to know the will of God, to pray in accord with the will of God. And you'll find this to be true of of The best prayers you know in your life are the people who know the word the best. Meaning they know God. I don't mean they just know the knowledge of the word and they know the the words. I mean they know God through his word. And they have a depth of relationship because they know him in his word and they pray to him like they do and they pray in accord with his will. Fifth lesson from John 17 about prayer is that prayer is a wartime communication. Prayer is wartime communication communication. Jesus models for us that prayer should function for us like those who are in the world but not of the world. So he's leaving the world, he's leaving the disciples, and he prays for them to be kept through the spiritual battle which would come upon them. He knows the threat, he knows the shame, he knows the dangers, he knows the pressures, he knows everything they're going to face. And so what does he do? Tell them about it? Yes. Instruct them how to respond? Yes. But he prays for them. He asks the Father to preserve them and to unify them in his name. He models for us how prayer is more like battlefield communication with headquarters in wartime than like calling on a butler in a mansion to assist us. It's easy to think of prayer as that second option. We're all just living in the glorious kingdom of our God, and prayer is like us picking up the, the telephone and calling up to heaven for the next greatest thing we need served with. But in reality, Jesus models for us that this is like a a walkie-talkie, back-to-headquarters reality. We're on a wartime mission, we're in battle, and we're in desperate and eager need for the commander-in-chief to direct us, to strengthen us, and to reinforce us. John Piper has helped with this idea when he says, the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that they try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you believe that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. In other words, you will not pray as frequently, as fervently, or as truly as you should if you do not understand that we are in a spiritual battle. Prayer is wartime communication. Prayer also is the needed posture of sanctification and service. Prayer is the needed posture of sanctification and service. This flows out of that last lesson. We're in a battle. We're on a mission in the world. We're left here by our Lord for a purpose. And so Jesus prays in verse 17 sanctify them in or by your truth. Your word is truth. And then he prays in verses 18 and 19. He says, I've, I'm leaving, I'm coming to you, but I'm leaving them in the world. As you sent me, I'm sending them sanctify them and make them useful to do the thing that I've sent them into the world to do. And so the key ingredient to move us along in holiness and service is prayerful dependence on the Lord. This is the needed heart posture of of any who want to be more holy and more useful. It's a heart posture of, of constant dependence upon the God of heaven. So, are you eager to be more like Jesus? Are you eager to sin less? Are you eager to walk in the the righteousness of Christ? Are you eager to fight the illicit, ungodly, unholy desires that, that pull at your affections every moment of your life? Are you eager for them to stop having so much sway on your decisions and on your thinking? Are you eager for your words to honor the Lord more and more? Are you eager to be useful in your relationships, in your home, in your workplace, in your church family? To do the things that God has foreordained for you to do the good works he redeemed you to accomplish in the world. Are you eager for all of those things? Do you want that in your life? Then the needed posture of your heart is what Jesus models for us here. It is prayerful pursuit of those things. Asking God to produce in us that which we cannot produce in ourselves. This is exactly the heart of Jesus in verses 20 to 23 as well when he prays for our unity. Their sanctification and their service leads to their unity in verses 20 and 23. Jesus knows these are are spiritual realities, spiritual works, supernatural works, heaven-based works that we cannot imitate or make happen on our own. Yeah, we can throw tinsel on our Christmas tree. We can make it look pretty with spiritual disciplines, but we can't produce fruit out of our tree unless we are connected to the vine who is Christ. And so we want to be sanctified and we want to be useful and we want to be one, unified as one in the Lord. And if that is our heart's desire, then we would have the posture of prayerful dependence upon the Lord. And the reason we're so often prayerless is because we're so often negligent about these things. We're thoughtless about these things. Other things consume our concern more than these things. We want earthly provision more than we want heavenly sanctification. We want to rise the ladder in our career more than we want usefulness to the Lord and doing the good works he's appointed for us to do. We want an easy life more than we want unity in the body of Christ. And so then we find ourselves not praying about those things. Because you don't have to pray about the other things. I mean, you still can, but you can kind of make those things happen. Beloved, if this is our heart posture, then we would be those who pray. Seventh lesson is that prayer is tethered to eternity. Prayer is tethered to eternity. Jesus in this moment in John 17 is operating in space and time. In his incarnated body, he is with and present with these disciples in this moment, ever mindful also then of eternity. And so as he faces the greatest possible pressure ever known in space and time, human realities... No greater pressure has ever fallen on one moment nor on one man than that which would come upon our Lord Jesus on the cross of Calvary. And as he sets his sights on that pivotal moment, he looks beyond it. And he's tethered to eternity which will go on forever and ever. And as he sets his sights beyond the work of the cross into eternity, he prays in verse 24 that God would bring those who are redeemed by his cross work to be with him in eternity to behold his glory. So he's praying before the cross is ever a reality for the eternal accomplishment of that cross work. Essentially what he's praying for here is his own faithfulness through the sacrifice. Because the only way for verse 24 to be answered is for him to die on the cross. And so he's praying essentially for the eternal outcome that will require a space and time sacrifice of his own flesh. And this is then evidence of our Lord's eternal perspective which drives his praying. Consumed with eternal realities, he is... Consumed and concerned to pray as well. Which is what is true prayer. It's tethered to eternity. It's carried along by eternal and unchanging realities. You pray because the eternal God will hear you. A God who isn't just tied to to your moment in time and your particular problem and your particular moment. He's bigger than you and greater than you and eternal beyond you. So, you pray to him. You pray because you long for the God of eternal power to work in this moment and for eternity. You pray prayers shaped by the eternal purposes of God. You pray in the moment for God's eternal will to be done. You pray for faithfulness and fervency to be a good soldier because you know that there's an eternal plan and eternal rewards waiting for the faithful all designed by an eternally wise God. Brother, or sister, prayer is tethered to eternity. So to increase in your own prayer life, your own prayer journey, your own exercise of a prayerful heart, you must increase in eternal mindedness. You must think beyond the present. You must get beyond the past. You must see with eyes of faith into the eternal future, and like our Lord, pray in accord with that. So college students, as you prepare to head back, just to use you as an example, heading off to an amazing experience and opportunity in life, a life-changing experience, a pivotal moment in your journey. It is so easy in those, as you face those kinds of things to get tethered to the most immediate need. And to think in terms of and pray in light of what is immediately in front of you. But true prayer goes farther. Faithful prayer in loving relationship with the Father goes beyond that. Pray bigger than that. Pray bigger than just getting safely to your college campus. Pray bigger than that your classes will go well. Pray bigger than that you'll just meet good friends when you get there. Pray bigger than that you might meet your spouse when you go. Pray bigger than that. You'll learn what you need to learn. Pray that in all of those things, you can pray those things. Amen. Pray for your spouse. Pray for safety on the road. And rejoice when God blesses you with those things. He cares about those things. But pray for eternal things. Pray that God in in your education would equip you to be the servant he wants you to be for the rest of your life. Whether it's 10 days, 10 years, or 80 years. Ask him to to guide your steps to the relationships that, that he can use you in to bless and encourage and edify for all of your days. You get the idea, prayer is tethered to eternity. Last lesson is that prayer is the arena for wrestling with competing desires. Prayer is the arena for wrestling with competing desires. In verse 24 again, Jesus expresses his desire to complete the mission that he was sent into the world to accomplish. He prays that Those he's going to redeem will be brought safely home and behold his glory for all of eternity. But in a few moments, as I've already mentioned, he'll lead his disciples out of the upper room. He'll head to the Garden of Gethsemane. He'll find a quiet, private place in the garden, deep in the garden. He'll invite his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, to come with him to watch and pray that they enter not into temptation. They will sleep. He will pray. He'll go further into the garden and he will pray as it were with sweat drops of blood, the grief and the pain and the affliction so intense upon our Savior that he cries out and has a physical reaction of blood coming out his sweat pores. So earnest is he to see his Father work all of this out. And what does he pray there? Father, if there is... Another way for this cup, if it can be any other way, then let it be so. But, not my will, the one just expressed, but your will be done. You see, beloved, Jesus is in prayer wrestling between two good, ordinate, in order, Desires. One is to avoid the cross. That's a good desire. That's a, a normal desire. That's a, a right desire. The second is to go to the cross and to die for sinners so that they can be redeemed. That's a good and right and ordinate desire in keeping with the eternal purposes of God. Jesus knows which one is right, but it's in prayer that he in his soul wrestles through them. And ask the Father to help him to be faithful and to be obedient to what he knows is the will of the Father. So he can pray in the garden, not my will but your will be done because he prayed in the upper room. I will, I desire that those whom you have given me will be with me where I am forever. In this then Jesus teaches us a crucial lesson about prayer That prayer is the part of your relationship with God in which you wrestle through these competing desires as you submit to his will and seek to do what he wants you to do. Inevitably, you will be brought to decision points in which these desires compete against one another. And by compete, I mean they both can't happen. But they're both right and good desires. Now, by all means, you have lots of inordinate desires, out-of-order desires, desires which you ought not have which are the product of your own sin nature, still remnant and resident within you. And it is certainly in prayer that you put those things to death. As you submit to the word and you cry out to God, Lord, free me from the power of this sin as you have freed me in and through your Son. Prayer and sin cannot exist at the same time in your soul. That's what Jesus said to his disciples as he led them in the garden, Watch and pray so that you enter not into temptation. The cure to temptation, the, the kryptonite to Satan's alluring of your soul, is to pray. To plead with the Father to keep you from the sin before you as you apply the truth of His Word in that moment. But I'm talking beyond that to competing desires that are ordinate. They're right desires. They're good. They're both good things. But they both can't be true. And if you've lived long enough and walked long enough with the Lord, you've had these things. So I'll give you a few innocuous examples, and you can apply the own, your own details of your own life to them. But maybe you long to serve the Lord in some new ministry venture here at Newton Bible, and yet you also long to invest more time in your kids at home, and you're feeling the pinch of, of there's something more to do, but I feel like I need more time at home with my kids as well. What should you do? Both good desires. Both good desires. Both ordinate desires. Which should you do? Or you desire to be faithful in your family relationships and in your church ministry responsibilities, but you're you're tired. You need rest. You need refreshment and rejuvenation, and and wonder if now is the time to take a step back from something, so as to recover and and then be more useful in the days to come. What should you do? Or you have the opportunity to give more time to a small group Bible study or or to some form of discipleship where you know you'll be encouraged and hopefully be an encouragement to others, but you also could use that time created by not doing that to reach out to neighbors in in your neighborhood or coworkers or friends who don't know Jesus. And if you didn't do this thing, you'd have time to to have them over for a meal or invest an evening in them. What should you do? Or you have a surplus of, of finances and you're not sure what you ought to do with that surplus. Should you reinvest that money in in your family's property so as to make it more useful for ministry? Or should you use that money to take care of of something that's been an ongoing plague in in your home or in something you own? Or should you take that money and, and bless someone else who you know has a need? Or should you take that money and give it to that missionary who's running that building project whom you know needs the finances? What should you do? All of those are good desires. What should you do? Beloved, what did Jesus do when he had competing desires that were both right and good? He ran to his Father in prayer over and over again. So cry out to our Lord. Pray for him to lessen one desire and increase another pray for him to make clear what would be most honoring to him submit your will to him in prayer say to him if there's anything carnal anything sinful here in either of these desires show that to me and remove that from me cry out to him for clarity and compassion for others Ask for him to supply all that you need so that as you make the decision, you know him to be trustworthy to provide the outcome, whatever he deems that to be, based on your decision. Beloved, we ought learn from our Lord how to pray. So I encourage you in this moment, look at that screen. Look at all eight of those. What's the one that pops off the screen to your eyes? What's the two that grab your attention and you say, I need to think more about that? Will you commit to taking time? I know you've got family responsibilities later today or whatever. Write, a, write yourself a note. And in your time in the word tomorrow, come back to that thought and ask God to teach you in that category. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the example of your son. Without him, we would be hopeless and helpless. So we praise you for Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness, your fervency of mission, your clarity of teaching and of example. Lord, we pray that our lives would honor you all the more in the days to come as we grow in prayerful dependence, fullness of relationship, as we love you in light of your love for us. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.